Loving Heavenly Father, now as we come to look at the Bible, we thank you so much for your Holy Spirit. We pray that he would help us see the Spirit of Christ as we explore tonight this extraordinary moment of abandonment. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 25 years ago, Australians had to vote on a referendum. And there were two questions. The first question was, do you want to become a republic? And 55% of Aussies said no. But there was a second question, and that was, do you want to have a preamble at the start of our constitution? And it was a bigger no, 61%. But before the preamble was even voted upon, there was a fight about its wording in federal parliament. See, the Prime Minister at the time, John Howard, wanted one particular word to be included in this formal statement of identity. And you know what that word was? Mateship. He wanted this sentence included. He wanted it to say, we value excellence as well as fairness, independence as dearly as mateship. Howard said that the word mateship had a hallowed place in the Australian lexicon. And that's because mateship stands for equality and loyalty and friendship. The kind of deep friendship that is forged in the face of war or crisis or disaster. But we never actually got a chance to vote on that word mateship or not because the politicians couldn't agree to put it in. In fact, the Australian Democrats in the Senate had the balance of power and they said no, so we never voted on it. But I think that time has proven Howard to be right. I think we'd say that the spirit of mateship is at the heart of being an Aussie. And I reckon if Jesus and his 12 disciples were Aussies, they'd have called each other mates. Jesus and his 12 mates. In fact, I reckon as I've taught scripture, I've probably said that same phrase. Oh, Jesus is there with his 12 mates. And everyone in the scripture class would know exactly what I'm talking about. Jesus and his 12 mates. They were more than just friends. They were mates. And it's because of that reason that the events we're looking at tonight are so shocking. Because something will shatter their mateship. Jesus and the Twelve will never be the same again. And the action is happening on the night before Jesus died. Last week we saw that Jesus and his disciples got together on that night for a, a special meal to kick off the Passover festival. It was a very significant night and Jesus did something breathtaking. Remember what he did? He washed their feet. He did what even a Jewish slave would never lower themselves to do. The example I gave last week would, was if... if uh, King Charles went and visited a hospital and instead of just saying hello to people, he actually said to the nurse, can I help out by giving this patient a bedpan and a wash? I'd be like, really? A king doing that? A king would never steep, stoop down that low. But Jesus did far more than that. After Jesus did this, Jesus told his disciples, to follow his example 
and to wash others' feet like he did. And he said to them, verse 17, Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. They would be blessed if they would serve others just like Jesus served them. But there's a caveat. There's a kind of a, uh, except for this. And that is, he said, verse 18a, I'm not saying these things to all of you. Not all of the disciples would be blessed. And why? Well, the verse goes on to say, I know the ones I have chosen, but this fulfills the scripture that says, the one who eats my food has turned against me. Jesus chose 12 mates, but one will turn against him. One of the ones eating with him will turn against him, and that person will not be blessed. There's certainly something special about having a meal with others. Uh, Jesus frequently did that, and it wasn't without controversy. He was known as the guy who ate meals with sinners. And the reason it was controversial is that when you share a meal with someone, you share intimacy, and you expect that the person you've given the meal to will say, oh, thanks for a great feed, that they'll show some sort of gratitude. That's what we would expect. You certainly wouldn't expect that they'd walk out of your house, see your car on the side of the road and then kick its door in and say, thanks for dinner. You, you wouldn't expect that they would reject you and do something horrible to you. But we'll see something far worse than that tonight. Because a person at that meal will turn against Jesus. And you think, uh-oh, what's gone wrong? That could never be the plan. Well, have a look at this. We see what Jesus says in Psalm 41.9. He says, Even my best friend, the one I trusted completely, the one who shared my food, has turned against me. That was from the Old Testament. And Jesus quoted that psalm at that time. You know, he didn't actually quote the start of it, did he? He just said, the one who shared my food has turned against me. But look what he missed out on saying. My best friend the one I trusted completely. But you can be sure that that was in Jesus' mind as he said those words. What we're about to see is treachery. We're about to see abandonment on a grand scale. And Jesus, the human, would have felt it right here. But it hasn't happened yet. And so Jesus says, before that happens... To get ready for the fallout that will happen. He, he says in verse 19, I tell you this beforehand so that when it happens you will believe that I am the Messiah. At this point Jesus prepares his disciples for the betrayal. He knows that everything's going to hit the fan and so when it does he wants them to know that it's all according to plan. That it doesn't undermine who he is. And in fact who does he say he is? He says I am the Messiah. And he, he uses the words, I am, not by accident. It turns out that they're words that sound very, very similar in the original Hebrew language to the personal name for God, Yahweh. So much so that when God was speaking to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, Moses says, look, I'm happy to go and chat to the guys down there in Egypt, but what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. I am has sent you. A few thousand years later, 
Jesus is going around and what is he saying? He's saying to the Samaritan woman, I am. And he's saying to the religious people in chapter 8, I am. He's saying, when it comes to God, I am, Jesus is saying. I am the Messiah. And what's about to happen when this scoundrel smashes the place up with his, with, with his brutal betrayal? It's not an accident. It's according to plan. And in fact, it's the very thing that will lead people to see that I am the Messiah. And it's a message that the, the disciples will continue to spread after Jesus dies. Verse 20, he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who welcomes my messenger, that's you guys, whoever welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. And, whoever, and anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the Father who sent me. Mate will turn against mate. And mates will turn against Jesus. But the disciples will serve as Jesus' messengers nonetheless. They will be in Jesus' place, walking around and telling them about Jesus. And when they welcome the disciples, they will welcome Jesus. And when they welcome Jesus the Son, they'll be welcoming the Father. Now, it's quite a big thing, all of this. And it probably doesn't really make much sense to the disciples just at this point in time, but it soon will. But then something a little bit uncharacteristic happens for Jesus. He's explaining all this stuff, all this awesome theology, telling them about how it's all according to plan and how everything's going. And then suddenly he kind of chokes up. Before we read in verse 21, now Jesus was deeply troubled. And he exclaimed, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Jesus is deeply troubled. The words there, this is the same one that described his feelings when he saw the grief at the tomb of Lazarus. He saw everybody wailing and crying and in grief because of death. And what does it describe his emotions as being? Deeply troubled. It's the same thing. And if he'd been keeping it together up till now, he can't hold himself back anymore. The tears come out and he blurts out, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. He's already told the disciples that one of them's a devil, which they must have been a bit surprised about. But now he tells them why. One of the 12 mates will do the dirty on him. One of the 12 disciples will betray him. What does it mean to betray someone? It's when a spouse has an affair. It's when a friend shares your secrets. It's when a mate tells your enemy where you're hiding. It's about breaking trust. And I've got to say, betrayal is one of the lowest of all low acts. And if you've ever had anyone betray your trust, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. That's how Jesus felt at this moment. Troubled deeply in his spirit. Shattered in his heart. And the disciples can't believe it. Verse 22, the disciples looked at each other wondering, well, whom could he mean? They're all surprised, these disciples. 
None of them thought that their mates would actually do such a devilish act. And they're shocked and they try and find out more. And so we read in verse 23 that the disciple Jesus loved was sitting next to Jesus at the table. Simon Peter motioned to him to ask, who's he talking about? So that disciple leaned over to Jesus and asked, Lord, who is it? Uh, who's this disciple Jesus loved? It's probably John who wrote down this account of this history of Jesus's life. Didn't want to big note himself, but he had to include himself in it because he's a character. And it says here in, that he's sitting next to Jesus at the table. It's more literally, it's, he's reclining at the bosom of Jesus. The way that they had their fancy meals in the first century, it wasn't that they would sit along a long table, kind of like how Leonardo da Vinci put the Last Supper on the wall, his big painting of them sitting at a normal table, like we're going to have dinner over with brunch, sorry, with, with dinner at the moment in, in, a, in the hall. His, the actual way it looks is more like the picture that's inside our notes. They were actually lying down on the ground. Kind of weird to see. They were lying down on cushions. They would lie down on their left side, on their left elbow, and then with their right hand, they would reach in, and they would then get the food off the table. Kind of looks really uncomfortable and stuff, but it's, it's, it's sort of like you know a, a video night sitting there in front of the TV and you're all on the floor on, on cushions sort of thing. It's kind of that kind of vibe, you know. It's not a, a f but it's a very formal thing, and they're lying there like that together in this intimate sort of moment. And Jesus just said this thing, and, and then Simon Peter, who's the natural leader, he sort of he doesn't say Jesus, who is it? He sort of he catches. John, the disciple Jesus loved, he catches his eye and says, ask him, ask him what the deal is. Across this busy table in this noisy room, he motions to John, ask Jesus what the deal is. And so John actually turns to Jesus, who he's lying next to, and says, Jesus, who is it? Lord, who is it? And Jesus gives him the answer. Possibly only John is the one who hears this at this stage. And he says, it's the one to whom I give the bread I dip in the bowl. Oh. And then when Jesus had dipped it, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Jesus takes this piece of bread and dips it in this kind of dip of uh, fruit and spices, this really yummy stuff. It, it is actually what a host would do to show a mark of honour or friendship to somebody. It's, a, it's, it's another kind of first century custom. You know, washing feet didn't mean today what it meant back then, and, and dipping something in a bowl and giving it to them as you're lying down on the ground around a weird table, that's weird for us as well, but for them it was very significant. Jesus had just washed Judas' feet. And in fact, it's likely that Judas was at Jesus' right left-hand side, the place of honour. He was the special guest. And so he dips it and hands it to Judas. And we read in verse 27 that when Judas had eaten the bread, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus told him, Hurry and do what you're going to do. Judas eats and Satan enters him. 
Everyone around the table is confused. They don't understand what's happened. Verse 28 and 29, none of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. I mean, since Judas was their treasurer, some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor. That's all they really knew. I mean, at the start of the Passover festival, often the poor would go and stand at the entrance to the temple. Maybe Judas was going to go down there and give them some of the common money to help them out. <clears throat> or maybe he just needed to, to slip down to the local supermarket and grab some food because everything was going to be closed over the public holidays. Oh, I don't know. But it, they thought there's some sort of reason that this is happening. But they didn't know. But verse 30. So Judas left at once, going out into the night. There in a low-lit room, they were as close together as a bride and groom. They ate the food, they drank the wine, everybody having a good time except Judas. He was talking about the end of the world. And with that, Jesus drums, drops a bombshell. Verse 31. As soon as Judas left the room, Jesus said, the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory and God will be glorified because of him. Judas leaves. There's now 11 plus 1. And Jesus says, the moment of truth is before us. The event you have all been waiting for is about to happen because this is the time when the Son of Man will enter into his glory. Now, we've known about the glory of God ever since the start of John's gospel. Back in verse 14 of chapter 1, So the word became human, made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. We saw the glory of Jesus in so many ways, turning water into wine, bringing Lazarus back from the dead, showing his godness, his glory, he did it in so many remarkable ways. But above all, his glory is seen at the cross. That moment of humiliation is the moment of glory. And not just for him, but for God the Father as well. See, right here in the, in the mess of who's gone, why is he not here, what's happening, and all of these things, Jesus gives them an insight into what will happen the next day, Good Friday. He helps them understand what will happen as he approaches the cross. And he says another thing, verse 32. And since God receives the glory because of the Son, he will give his own glory to the Son and he will do so at once. All of this will happen in the days that follow. As Jesus is executed on the cross, that moment of shame is actually a moment of great glory. It brings glory to the Father because the greatest moment of love has happened. The greatest moment of mercy has occurred. Justice has been satisfied and now glory goes to the Father. And what does the Father do? He then glorifies the Son. This is an extraordinary picture of what happened at Easter. Jesus is glorified, which glorifies the Father, who then glorifies the Son. It's a remarkable picture of what happened at Easter. So much glory, but it begins with a heartbreaking betrayal. 
which leads to a heartbreaking departure. Jesus says, verse 33, Dear children, what a beautiful way to talk to them. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. This explosion of glory can only coincide with Jesus leaving. And where he's going is a solo journey. An unexpected, lonely, solo journey. A journey that is heartbreaking, that is tragic, and yet still beautiful and triumphant. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful tragedy, isn't it? But it's a tragedy nonetheless. And now Jesus has said this. What do you think he would say next to his disciples at that point? What do you think would be the natural topic that he would head to right at that point of dropping this bombshell? How would he tell them to react to the betrayal of their mate? What's the most important thing he could tell them at this critical moment? Verse 34, he says, So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Love. You think, love? What about revenge? I want to rip that guy's head off. It's like, seriously? Well, I wouldn't expect Jesus to talk about revenge, of course. But love? Wouldn't you think that maybe he'd talk about comfort? Well, actually, he does. And we're going to get to that next week. But right for now, the first thing that jumps off his lips is love. Love each other. Show love. Do love. Act love. And if you want to know what love looks like, you look to Jesus. You look to him washing the feet of the disciples as they were speechless with this remarkable act of servanthood. Washing feet is a really good way to see love. It's, it's radical. It's costly. It's humiliating, which is exactly what it means to love others. If you're going to love like Jesus, that's what it's like. Now, in the past, there's been this trend to say, what would Jesus do? In fact, people will get WWJD on jewellery and Bibles and all that sort of stuff. And I like the idea, but it's not always as useful as it promises because in every situation you try to think, well, if I was the Messiah and I was a 32-year-old male, what would I do? All right, it's kind of, we don't really, that's not exactly how the Bible tells us to think about ethics. Although there is a bit to it, though, because Jesus says, if you're going to copy me, do this, love. And so if you've got a WWJD, something like whatever, just think, what would Jesus do? Love. You could even replace the letters WWJD with L-O-V-E because it's the same thing. Jesus says, I want you to love deeply, sacrificially, genuinely. Because if you want to know what is it, the spirit of Christ, it is love. The spirit of Christ is love and we are to love like Jesus. And there are many reasons we might do that. But here's the Jesus reason. He says, verse 35, Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. That's the reason. The interesting one, isn't it? Right at that point, when one mate wrecks it for everyone, right at that moment, and everyone's going to be talking about them, what should they be doing? 
they should be loving. They should be having deep, genuine love for one another. And that is so that the world will know that they are Christ's disciples. And for us, the proof to the world that we belong to Jesus is because we love like Jesus. If we want the world to know what it's like to follow Jesus and how good it is and how amazing it is and how true it is, Jesus is saying, love one another. And if you're a follower of Jesus, here's a command for you as well. Love one another so the world will see that you are Jesus' disciples. And if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm so pleased you're here now in person or online because I want you to experience with us the love that we have for each other and for you to feel that love too. Because the love that we have is a supernatural love. It's a love that comes from Jesus, from his spirit, not from ourselves. And it is a love that leads us to have a community like no other, relationships like no other, relationships that cannot be manufactured. In fact, that's why I think hospitality is such a powerful evangelistic tool. You don't need fancy lights and sound and all sorts of gimmicks. You just need hospitality. And I'm not just talking about having someone around for a meal, as much as that is good. I'm thinking beyond that. The, the radical hospitality. The love for the outsider. The kind of gospel comes with a house key sort of radical hospitality. As we have that love for one another, the world will know that we are Christ's disciples. But Jesus has just said this thing to them and it seems that in Simon Peter's mind he just can't get over the thing that was talked about before. It's kind of like when you're chatting to someone you say the second thing and they haven't really listened to the second thing, they've just listened to the they're still processing the first thing. But he says this, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, You can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. Peter's not so much thinking about the new commandment to love one another. I'm sure he hasn't forgotten it, but it's not what's on his mind. He's thinking about where Jesus is going. Is he thinking that he's going to the cross? Unlikely, but possibly. I mean, Jesus has certainly said that the the Son of Man must be betrayed and, and be killed and on the third day rise. He's given them that information that they're like, yeah, 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 maybe not really processed it. Jesus has made so many promises about the coming of the Son of Man, but it just seems the disciples haven't necessarily put the dots together yet. So he doesn't tell them exactly what's going to happen, but he says to Peter that, Peter, you can't join me where I'm going, not just yet. And I think with that, Something drops in Peter's mind. He has his aha moment. And he says in verse 37, Why can't I come now, Lord? I'm ready to die for you. He understands that Jesus is going to his death. He sees that Jesus is going to the grave. And Peter, overcome with love for his brother, and and probably overwhelmed with a rush of blood to the head, he says, I will die for you, Jesus. Peter says, he will die for Jesus. Wherever you go, Jesus, I will be there with you. It's a beautiful, wonderful, courageous thing to say. He says he'll lay down his life for Jesus. He'll give up everything to serve his master. 
And boy, don't we want it to be true. Wouldn't it be just wonderful if Peter really could do that? If when faced with such temptation that he would stick it out with Jesus the whole way? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be a happy ending? But Jesus says, verse 38, die for me. I tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. Judas is going to betray Jesus. But Peter is going to disown him. It's just devastating. Peter will disown Jesus. This mate will give up on that mate. And you could see it happening a few years down the track. Things just sort of, you know, started to drift away and, and it was, you know, oh, those old days, remember Jesus? Yeah, that was nice. But we're not talking about years. We're not talking about months. We're not talking about weeks. We are talking about hours. Hours after this extraordinary moment of... the. the Jesus' eyes are still red from being so deeply troubled and Peter looks at him in the eye and says, I will die for you. But here's what happens from Luke's gospel. So they arrested Jesus and they led him to the high priest's home and Peter, that guy, followed Jesus at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and they sat around it. And Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, This man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, I, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. <laughs> no, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. About an hour later, someone else insisted. This must be one of them because he's a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And at that moment, the Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. tragic it's heartbreaking and you know I kind of want to throw Peter under the bus and say well you know I, I'd never do that what a jerk but deep down I know that's not true and what about you see I reckon I probably would have done something like what Peter did and when the rooster crowed, I would have sobbed. 
I disowned my mate. Here am I wanting to rip the head off that other jerk, Judas, for betraying Jesus. And here am I a few hours later, doing the same thing. It is such a tragic moment in the life of Jesus. What should have been this special night to celebrate the Passover has ended up in broken dreams and and shattered hearts. Mates are supposed to look out for mates. But right now, one mate's about to betray him and the other mate's about to desert him. And if you didn't know any better, you'd say this whole Christianity thing is looking pretty shaky, right? Who'd have thought 2,000 years later we'd be sitting in a room talking about this story? You'd think, no chance. The whole thing is going to pieces. I mean, Judas, the treasurer, the money guy, he's nicked off for the cash. And Peter, the one bloke who stands up and tells it like it is, He's just about to say three times he doesn't know Jesus from a bar of soap. It's just really almost too painful to read. Except for the middle bit, the bit about love. See, I reckon what we've got here, this might sound a bit funny, but it's kind of almost like we've got an abandonment sandwich. Let me tell you what I mean. The top slice of the bread is betrayal. And the bottom slice of the bread is denial. Betrayal on the top, denial on the bottom, and in the middle is love. That's what we've been eating together now. Between these painful slices of abandonment is a, is a sandwich filling that will change the world. It's love. Love that loves like Jesus. Love that is true mateship. Love that dies for his mates. Love that dies for his enemies. And maybe when you bite into that sandwich, maybe when you bite in, you experience the bitter taste of betrayal and denial. Or maybe the taste of love will overpower that pungent flavour. Or maybe there's both. Maybe you can taste notes of both in that mouthful. And maybe that's what we need today. Because we have experienced the worst of human evil and frailty. Judas betraying Christ. Peter denying Christ. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can see ourselves in them too, can't we? Like Judas... We have idols that overpower us and blind us. And like Peter, we have fears that overwhelm us and frighten us. And yet in the midst of evil and frailty, there's love. There's love. The love of Christ who died for us, who died for us in our evil, who died for us in our frailty. Jesus went to the place that we couldn't go so that we didn't need to go there. He loved us in a way we never would, even if we could. And with his explosion of love, we now know what love is really like. Because now with his spirit, we can love like Christ. We love one another 
as Christ has loved us. And by this shall all people know that we are his disciples.